Yeah, dirty bounty, yes, Ava. Come out now and fight! You need to be more like a dog. We don't need a bunch of cats in here. Yeah, looking in the mirror. Be a dog. Whatever happens in leash, it's always a scandal. Why do you think that was? Probably because we're always drinking and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no smoke without fire, not going to light. I met Tommaso Shea one day and he said, I'm sick of that northern crowd. He said, if they went set dancing twice a week, we'd all be set dancing twice a week. I can remember a lad, Jay Booth, right? And he was getting sick, right line like that, <laughs> looking at me like, and I'm going, this is not helping me. Every man, woman and monkey in me all is, is nearly writing them off. Shake the bucket! That's it! All right, you're very welcome to our very special panel. It's probably our favourite panel of the entire year. It's where we uh, talk to the lads from off the ball and get them to reflect on what an amazing year it's been or what a crap year it was in last year's when I remember being very depressed after it. <laughs> it was really one of the worst years of sport of all time. It was uh, one of the standout lines. We can't really say that about 2012. We have uh, Simon, Owen and Kieran with us and we've asked them in time-honoured tradition to go uh, top five top five sports moments of the year and maybe for the biggest disappointment as well um, maybe we'll start with the disappointments and get them out of the way actually Murph your biggest disappointment well uh, I think everyone else is going to say the Euro 2012 so I'll preempt that by saying that my low point is watching the All-Ireland Hurling final replay um, which for me which was hard for me on a number of levels um, because I had convinced myself that if there was going to be a backlash we would have seen the backlash in the drawn game. Yeah, Galway had hammered Kilkenny, obviously in the Leinster hurling final, uh, and I was fearful going into the final. To be honest, after the semi-final against Tipperary, I thought you know Galway aren't going to get within ten points. To be honest, and then the way that Galway played in the drawn game was just brilliant. I just thought it was absolutely amazing, and at the same time had room for improvement. So going into that replay, I was really, really, really confident. And it was just such a depressing day, I must say. Even after the injury to the goalkeeper and the fact that there was really serious concerns about whether or not Joe was going to be fit? Yeah, I mean, obviously they were all worries, but to be honest, every All-Ireland final has worries like that. You know, there's stories going around Crow Park and you actually don't know how true most of them are. Now, we knew the keeper was in big trouble. Watching the the warm-up, we knew he was in big trouble. But, you know, it was... It was tough personally and then there was also... Uh, quite a disturbing personal element to this as well because um, is Bobby Kerr involved in this? yeah Bobby Kerr is involved in this one. you're absolutely right <laughs> because don't. you were sitting beside me can I step out for a minute or so Just no like, no no do not want to relive this basically what happened was Bobby Kerr is from Kilkenny uh, and I was there courtesy of a sponsor Bobby Kerr was also there courtesy of the same sponsor so he was sitting directly in front of me and he was wearing uh, a black velvet cowboy hat with, uh, you know, a black and amber ribbon tied around the middle of it. And I was like, you know, that's fine. You know, you see that, that's not a problem. I was sitting directly in front of him. As he stood up for the National Anthem, I happened to notice that his jeans were a little, they were a little low slung, shall we say. So for a moment, I saw just, you know, a slight builder's crack. As the game progressed, this problem became more and more pronounced. So that by the, t- by the time Walter Walsh's third goal went in, let's just say I was looking at a vista that no man should have to look at. A full moon. So what we're talking about here is my own county getting absolutely destroyed in an All-Ireland final and me having to look at that particular image. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't think that any person could ever come up with a lower point 
in any year of sport in history, I would have thought. All right, well, uh, let's see what Owen can do with his biggest disappointment of the year. Bobby Kerr is not involved in this, <laughs> that's thank- good. thankfully. That's and good. Murph, you, tried, you, uh, you weren't preempting anything. Well, you weren't no. preempting correctly because I, di- I didn't go for the Euros. Good. Uh, again, I thought that everyone else would, so maybe <laughs> yeah. the Euros mightn't even get mentioned, which might be a good thing. The UCI's handling of the Lance Armstrong scandal pretty much from start to finish if you yeah. want to go back to the 1990s uh, from 99 on maybe but in particular this year firstly they tried to wrest control of the case from USADA USADA are doing all this amazing work UCI are trying to tell them you don't have jurisdiction here we do USADA win that fight USADA think okay we're not going to just send this to the UCI once it's completed we're going to send it to everybody and put it on our website so there's no chance for anyone to look through it before Everybody can look through it, if you take my point. There are also the contradictions involved in the UCI's stance, even within the press conference alone, within the couple of hours when they announced that they were going to accept USADA's findings. Firstly, they they said that, they accepted USADA's findings, and they stripped, this is the UCI now, they stripped Lance Armstrong the titles and banned him for life, while also having a pop at USADA. And subsequently, a few days after, they came out with another statement, a more detailed criticism of how USADA handle things. USADA are the, the people who did it right here, but for some reason the UCI are having goals at them. Also, within that press conference, the the right at the very start, in fact, Pat McQuaid, president of the UCI, thanked all the people who gave evidence to USADA for getting helping them get to the bottom of this story. Within an hour or so, he's doing interviews afterwards, and he's asked about Tyler Hamilton and Floyd Landis, these guys who were among those people who had been thanked by McQuaid, and McQuaid says, you know, you guys are making these fellas out to be heroes. They're not heroes, they're scumbags. He did retract that comment immediately, but the anger was visible and that's the way that it was written. Pat McQuaid then, of course, decides he's going to stay on. He doesn't have any case to answer. A lot of this was in the past. The man who was in charge in the past, Hein Verbruggen, he stays on also. Apparently he doesn't have a case to answer, even though he does have a case to answer. The whole thing has been an absolute mess. They found themselves in a position where they could support Lance Armstrong no, no, no longer. But even then, there wasn't much uh, a satisfactory uh, analysis coming out of the UCA. What about the response from the cyclists? I know you had uh, Nicholas Roach on as well around that time. Um, that was one of the, the most interesting interviews that I heard mm. over the course of the last 12 months. And he also seems uncertain about what his own stance is on, on the whole thing at the moment. Yeah, very uncertain. That was a strange kind of an interview. I, f- I found it kind of uncomfortable in a way because... Nicholas Roach isn't Lance Armstrong. You know, Nicholas Roach isn't doping. And yet you end up having this conversation where you, you he's not being strong enough on it, I don't think, in a lot of cases. You end up grilling him. When, you end up grilling him. And, you ha- do, and, and it has to be done. He, he does, he's in a situation now, right, where he is... Well, first of all, when I'm asking him about Pat McQuaid and whether he should step down, I know Nicholas Roach's relationship there. I know that Pat McQuaid's son is Roach's agent. Uh, so that he, and he would obviously know Pat McQuaid. So that could place him in something of a difficult situation. But you still have to, I still feel you have to ask. And some people were texting in afterwards saying that's an unfair question. I don't think it is an unfair question. And I would have asked any cyclist that, you know, Mark Cabot, whoever it might be, if I was interviewing them, I would have asked them the the same thing. Should Pat McQuaid resign? Should Pat McQuaid yeah. resign, yeah. Uh, and But there's also the, the issue of Roach going to Alberto Contador's team, uh, convicted doper at this point. Um there's the fact that isn't it Bjorn Reese who runs that team, who has doped in the past. The, you, you can do a better job of moving away from that circle and, if and you really want to, if yeah. you're Nicholas Roach. Are you in any way hopeful for cycling for next year? The the move that has kind of come about where there is a group now of sponsors 
legends, journalists, people who are insiders in the sport trying to set up an alternative? Yeah, that is a nice idea, but it's all so close. I, I when I hear of the of the success of some of the cyclists now it doesn't sound completely different it just it's too close to the Lance Armstrong era that anything now I'm still dubious about yeah. you can't you know of course you can't go around throwing out ac- accusations but I'm far from the point where I can look at cycling and think this is great everything's clean here yeah. even you know that that group is brilliant but we were talking to the head of skins their chief executive who is involved heavily involved in that um skins pulled out of their sponsorship uh in of cycling but even when I asked him well, you only pulled out this year you were involved for the last few years since I think it might have been 2008 he didn't really give me satisfactory answers as to he said well you know nothing was proven about Lance Armstrong at the yeah, time yeah, but everybody yeah. knew so yeah. why weren't you pulling why were you getting involved in cycling in the first place things like that still worry me I'm still not blown away by the idea of the Tour de France next year yeah we've got uh, David Walsh in the programme coming up after 4 o'clock as well talking about his new book 7 Deadly Sins Simon biggest disappointment for you it was actually going to be Lance not capitulating I felt when all the pressure was building there was debates over whether Nike were going to pull out then they pulled out and as more and more big names start to say, yeah, this looks dubious, it looks like a serious situation, I really hoped there'd be a full declaration and yeah. maybe a tearful Oprah-type moment. <laughs> and then we could really go to town and then the, the last few doubters, Miguel Indra and these types of people would have to shut up. But we're just left with this little shred of doubt for those people who haven't really properly looked at the evidence. And uh, it's just that niggle that's going to be left. Well, it still, might come in the next couple of years. He's still tweeting pictures of himself lying down in his room with the seven uh, yellow jerseys. I think we're a while away from the, the Oprah moment yet. but He doesn't need the cash at the moment. I, I think you know a far more interesting conclusion to it would be, rather than talking to Oprah, talking to USADA about the UCI. I mean, I think that's, that's the thing we all would hope for that Lance would decide to spill the beans on everything that, that's happened uh, not just his own involvement in it the whole uh, take, take everyone down with yeah, him because that would be I think the, we're coming around to the conclusion that there's so many uh, cyclists obviously who are doped in the past you talk about Nicholas Roach trying to get away from people who've doped in the past that's almost impossible no matter what club you go to or whatever team you go to but ultimately, if the guys running the thing allow such leeway, there's always going to be a Lance Armstrong, this massive personality who, with this drive to win, who's going to do whatever he has to do. So the once you allow that leeway, yeah. it's going to keep happening. We actually, Lance. we actually have uh, an hour uh, devoted to all of our stuff on Lance on December the 27th. I think on is it? Uh, it's sometime next week anyway. So listen in because uh, we we will be replaying a load of those really good interviews we did yeah. all year. I, okay. I just was that that was that my disappointment. <laughs> it was it was the Ireland New Zealand second test. I was in Poland, uh, we were all crowded around 8 in the morning around a tiny little laptop watching on bad Wi-Fi. Everybody had just woken up you know, sort of towards the second half. I got up early to watch the whole thing. Had lowered my expectations. All right, it's Ireland, New Zealand, it's the usual, hammered in the first test. Can we get within 20 points? Then it gets closer and closer. And then towards the end, our scrum's on top. We're dominating every aspect of the game. Dan Carter looks like he doesn't know what to do. We finally have a draw. It looks like we have a draw and you're trying to tell yourself that's a good result. We'll take it, you know, over the course of the history of the thing. Scrum up near there, 10 metre line, a dominant scrum for Ireland. The ref, I think it was Nigel Owens, deems it. Penalty the other and they get up the other end. Dan Carter scuffs a horrible looking drop goal over. They beat us again. And for an Irish, I'd, I'd swap beat New Zealand for a Grand Slam, personally, because it's such an annoying thing over the course of our history. I think everybody would, wouldn't they, at this stage? Yeah. For a future Grand Slam or would you take away the one Grand Slam <laughs> yeah. this team has won? I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, a future one. Well, I just hate the idea that we've never beaten them. I mean, it's just such an embarrassing stat. Like you know, yeah. that we uh, we at our best, Dame on a bad day. Yeah. At no stage have we ever caught yeah. them on a bad day. I mean, day the, the English the last day were saying, "Oh, 
it's been 10 years since we beat them you know we have a pretty bad record against them we always beat England they have the no flu good. they never have the flu when they're playing us yeah, yeah. right let's get to your top fives uh, so I'm going to start with you your top five counting down from uh, number five to one so you want to go through them straight yeah, yeah. well Jess Guinness was my number five because well the BBC uh, broadcasters were quite emotional um, the pressure built up in the girl they sold the story brilliantly the pressure on her coming into the games is the face of the games the posters all over London she's a quiet sort of personality she's spoken about problems she's had with body images and that in the past not that self-confident a person and the pressure on her and it kind of felt like the most important medal to me before the event anyway and then the 100 metres hurdles comes up and they kind of do that scanning thing where the camera follows you down and uh, you just see the crowd all rising to their feet. There's this little tiny girl, was it 80,000, 90,000 people mm. in the stadium? And it, ju- it just felt really emotional. Was and you're watching a British athlete and wondering why you feel you know, so emotional about mm. it, but uh, it just got you. That was also, I think, the hur- was the hurdles her first event? Yeah. Was that, yeah, and that was a morning time event. Mm. You remember from Beijing, in fact, almost every other Olympics, people are coming in in dribs and drabs in the morning. Yeah. That was that w- might as well have been the 100 metres men's final yeah. The yeah. blue ribbon event given the amount of excitement at the very at about nine in the morning whatever time it was I felt the same I remember watching this going wow because the track yeah. and field it could have even been the first day of track and field I think it might well have been it was I think it was the first event and certainly and obviously there's lots of other great events in the Olympics and the boxing rings where we had our success but there is something about the track and field still ah, even yeah. though that's ah, a sport yeah. that's had its doping issues uh, that really gets you going and I, I yeah I thought that Jess Ennis the whole, her whole achievement was pretty special uh, number four which might be shared with Murph in some ways the Galway Kilkenny the Leinster final um, a bit like the New Zealand thing you're so sick of watching Kilkenny do the same thing over and over and over your childhood right up to the age you are now watching the same thing happen same sort of characters Brian Cody um, and then to watch the Galway players you know you hear so much about don't show respect to them don't stand back from the start and lots of teams talk about it in the build-up, and so few actually do it against the likes of Kilkenny or Kerry back in the day. They did it, and then the physical thing of seeing the likes of Johnny Cohn physically mow over Kilkenny players, there's something very satisfying about watching that. Yeah, like, and th- that Johnny Cohn thing is actually ridiculous. Because I, you know, I've, I've watched it again there not too long ago, for whatever reason. And For whatever Richie, reason. <laughs> Richie Parr, perhaps in the aftermath of the replay. For titillation. Yeah. But Richie Parr is the guy who has his feet planted. He's, so he's planted both of his feet. Johnny Cohn's head, he's like, Johnny Cohn has his head down, kind of r- trying to get himself back up into a sort of an erect position. So, like, Richie Parr is in A1 position to absolutely mow down Johnny Cohn. I just to see Johnny Cohn just run just straight over without fouling him or yeah and Colin Fennelly is behind Johnny Cohn and it just goes to show like how uh, you know how just how used to being the f- more physical team like any are Colin Fennelly stops to catch Johnny Cohn after Richie Parr has bounced him in his direction to monster him with a tackle and he actually like has to kind of do a double take when Cohn doesn't bounce back to him he actually has to avoid you know running over the prostrate form prostrate form of Richie Richie Power. I mean it was it was an extraordinary day really was extraordinary unfortunately I was listening to it on the radio with Dave McIntyre coming back from the Munster football final (laughs) that's neither here nor there Mm. but uh, it was it was an amazing amazing day Okay, we'll uh, talk a bit more about that I think a little bit later on with uh, your top five Murph Uh, Leinster Ulster Leinster Ulster was my number three the Heineken Cup final you were there with me Jerry it was quite actually a stressful day in terms of logistics we won't go into that but a lot of my day was (laughs) running in and out of the stadium so there's this crazy noise. You know, you're walking up to this bastion of English rugby. Um, 
you're so used to going there and being totally outnumbered as Irish fans, particularly back in the day. There's more and more Irish going to Twickenham these days, but to have all 82,000 people be Irish, split almost 50-50 Leinster Ulster, it was a really unique feeling. But a lot of my day was spent sort of running in and out of the noise. So I'd be there with the, the people delivering food up to the buffet carts one second, then rushing out of this wall of noise the next second. <laughs> and that happened to me about 10 times during the game. I won't go into the reason why. It was just technical issues that happened on the day. But then at the end... Uh, Leicester first of all pull out their biggest performance of the season on their biggest day which is a really good sign in the team obviously destroyed Ulster ultimately um, but then at the end um, my job being sideline reporter was the Leicester players celebrating they did a lap of the pitch and then at the end I'm um, reporting back up to you guys but I'm right beside the Leinster players as they're you know going to their friends and family and hooking people in the crowd dragging people out starting to sing songs all that sort of cup final stuff and I was no further from them than I am from you guys now. I was thinking, this is as close for somebody who's no good at sport that they're ever going to get to what it must feel like to win something big. This is it for Simon Hick. Is the Do you, know, <laughs> do you know what was strange about that day? I was over there uh, just in a supporter's capacity and the event itself was amazing. Exactly everything, I had a different experience of it, but it just being in the ground, amazing atmosphere, very Irish sort of occasion. But it actually... May as well not have been going on for as far as London knew. There was so much happening that weekend. There was weekend. something else on in Wembley the, that the, day. The, as well. Yeah, Millwall were playing in the uh, Championship playoff final, if I remember correctly, uh, which was taking up most people's attention. Chelsea were playing that night in the Champions League final. Oh, yeah. Uh, so but once you got into Twickenham, you knew this big, huge rugby match was playing. But elsewhere, it, it was tough to even pick, pick supporters out. There was so much else going on, which made me wonder how they were going to handle the Olympic Games. I just thought this is such a big city maybe the city has to be massive to for, to handle the Olympics but even that day there were so many different things going on that people mightn't even have known much about I, I, was, I was just looking around just getting the transport around the place I was thinking this can't all hold up for the Olympics it's so huge but it yeah. ultimately did Yeah I wonder if um, maybe if there had been an English team it would have been a different sensation when you arrived as opposed to the two Irish probably. teams oh, Probably yeah. oh, Well definitely actually the same as two, if two French teams were here be a bit of crack you know you'd see the Fred Claremont fans especially are hilarious Yeah. Uh, so there would be a, b- a bit of crack going on but ultimately you wouldn't care too much well, about yeah. Game. We'll get a- English rugby <laughs> didn't care too much about Wimbledon Lancer and Ulster, yeah. but we did. It was great. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to get a pretty good idea of what it's going to feel like in yeah. about six oh, months' yeah, time, yeah. <laughs> given well, the final thought in, uh, in Dublin. But yeah, I mean, I think just about that idea, and you said that to me when you came home, actually, about that at the Olympics, uh, and I think maybe we all underestimated just how huge the Olympics is mm. um, in retrospect. You know, I mean, I think you know we. Uh, throughout Jul- July there was a Euros hangover and you know this Olympics was coming up and maybe we just didn't feel it you know we just didn't mm. get how big the Olympics was going to be and how, how, how much that the, the Londoners were going to buy it which, you know, what, which is yeah because all the stories at that stage were about the security not being up to yeah. and money you know Mitt that, Romney having a go Mitt Romney yeah. like yeah, that yeah. was that d- d- dictated the news media for about a week it was like I, oh it's all going to be a disaster and from an Irish perspective it was oh the teams aren't training here we're not making any money out of this doesn't feel like we're connected to the thing at all you know that Derville is just going over late it's just this little short flight mm-hmm. over it might as well be in Brazil or wherever it might be next yeah. but yeah once the thing started you went god this is so close to us this is a huge event yeah. yeah. the one thing that struck me about the uh, Leinster Ulster game was when it was clear that Leinster were going to win a few Ulster fans left and I was like oh what about this much vaunted Ulster fans and then to a man and woman all the rest of the Ulster fans just stood up and started singing stand up for the Ulster. The Ulster fans were great through it. They the were amazing. Game, yeah. Like it, it was one of those kind of things where you think, wow. And maybe feeds in a bit to the Irish fans 
singing in defeats, which happens sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And the Ulster fans are lauded for it, but the Irish football fans are like... Yeah, well, it's a different yeah. thing, isn't it, you know? Uh, right, let's move on to number two. Number two, yeah, it's Ian Poulter specifically in the Ryder Cup. We spoke a bit about this the other night with Conor Deegan, and I was talking before he went in air, actually, and he's great insight into golf, obviously. But we were talking about this bug-eyed Englishman who his eyes completely wild, screaming at the American fans, gesticulating, almost encouraging the American fans to hate him and to draw in the other European players behind him. And what was different about it for me from most golfing events was that it wasn't the guy who was really composed, the Louis Eustazen or Rory McIlroy, or these guys who who just are in control of everything, in control of their body language, in control of their shots. Obviously, Ian Poulter was in control of his shots, but everything else looked totally wild. And yet, every single thing he did in the run-in in the was the last five or six holes where he got birdies. Um, such a specific little tiny skill where your arms have to be totally relaxed, but yet the rest of his body was raging yeah. with sort of mm-hmm. adrenaline Ag- and anger. like aggression and adrenaline in that sport. Maybe uniquely is your enemy, and that's what makes it so amazing. You know yeah. that Poulter can has manages to channel all of that aggression and all of that adrenaline into doing the most unbelievably specific thing, you know, possibly, you know, say there's archery or something like that, you know, where you need to be absolutely dead calm. And I mean, you know, you don't see, you know, you don't see archers behaving like Ian Poulter for a reason. Because, you know, adrenaline... They can't shake. Because no one watches it? Yeah, well... (laughs) (laughs) This was an Olympic year, uh, Ger, so it got its 15 minutes. That was the most boring Olympic event, by the way, so I had two minutes of it. But, you know, like, like to be... uh, The ability to do that... In that sort of a situation, I, you know, I have to agree with you, Poulter is just ridiculous. Absolutely the other thing is ridiculous. it's drawn out over such a long period of time. That's the best thing about golf, I think, especially if you're watching on it's TV. An hour and, it's an like, you know, you talk about, we, oh, you reeled day. off six birdies in a row, you know, as if it was like, you know, God, he bang, went bang, out bang, of himself bang, for yeah. five minutes and, you know, did something ridiculous. That's an hour and a half of golf. Yeah. You know? I've been in the zone, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Um, um, number one? Number one, it's probably similar to most people, is, is Katie. I didn't actually enjoy the final at all. I found it really, really stressful. It was unbelievably tight. Um, I, I don't know that much about boxing, but it just didn't feel as free as any of the Paddy Barnes' fights or her previous fight. Yeah, um, that, th- that's in my top five. Mm. But it's it's not number one for the that exact reason. Mm. That I just... I couldn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. Like you just wanted to get through it. I do. I like. I do, I don't want to ever care about a sporting event as much as I cared about that event. Yeah. Because... It's it was disgusting. Yeah. You know, it was it was the most there was awful. There's too much riding on that uh, for a sporting event. It was the most event. awful 15 minutes of my life. I had to get out of the office that day. I think you lads might have watched yeah, this I in the office. Here, yeah. There were there were just a few too many people around. Yeah. And I we actually ended up going to the pub. So that was uh, with Michael McCarthy who's here with us yeah. and Fionn Davenport. But I don't know there was just something about there were just people there was too much going on in the office and I just thought go to the pub, don't know anybody there. Uh, and in fact it seemed to me to be a lot of tourists and that kind of thing who happened to be in there and then other people who were watching the Katie Taylor fight but it was no more enjoyable may, may as well just stayed in the office it was as stressful in in there as it would have been if we just stayed in mm. here why? Like, why, yeah. why did it mean so much? why did it mean so much? So that's, that's the question I've been asking myself as well I mean I think we the have, context of the thing yeah, the fact we've, that she'd built the sport yeah we've very seldom had an athlete you know we've had we've had great athletes you know and we've you know if things go well you know, God, Sonia could get a silver medal and that'd be amazing. You know, yeah. if Sonia got a silver, that'd be brilliant. You know, if Katie Taylor got a silver, then it would have been an unmitigated 
disaster. That's true, but disaster. I think, but that's the same. That that just that that kind of measures the success and the pressure she was under. But I think the reason the reason maybe that I cared about it so much was that I would have cared about it anyway. But from the first fight on, the whole country was so behind it. There haven't been that many things in my lifetime that the whole country is excited yeah. about. So you know that when your mum is talking to about Katie Taylor and your sister and everybody is yeah. asking about Katie, people who aren't even into sport, let alone mm. women's sport or women's boxing, the, the, I think that was a big part of it, that, that it became such a huge event. And, and almost it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that we cared about it because we cared about it. Yeah. That makes any sense. Was, um, was the Euros an issue? I the think fact so. that the Euros was a total disaster. Yeah, I mean, if Ireland had gone to the Euros and if they'd somehow, if they'd gotten, out, if they'd beaten Croatia, you know, drawn with Italy, scraped out of the group, played in the quarter final, lost on penalties, big huge parade down the down O'Connell Street, you know, maybe maybe it wouldn't have mattered so much. But I think that the fact that, and I don't know, like again, this is the most unfair thing in the world. Looking back at it, to ask Katie Taylor to make up for. Our football team's deficiencies. <laughs> it yeah. was more than that, though. It's, it, it's Ireland. It was just it's the Ireland, Ireland. the recession, everything. You know, yeah. I mean, everything was on those fifteen minutes. And for that reason, I didn't enjoy it. Like yeah. I enjoyed the first fight. The first fight was so good. It was brilliant. It was emotional. It was just, it was amazing. You know, that would that would be. I think you know, if I was yeah. going to pick a Katie moment, that would be a highlight. But hey, stop stop picking your top five. Yeah, no, no, no. I'll just very briefly say what was my highlight was that we all knew her personality quite well. She'd done a lot of interviews in the build but almost none of us had seen any of her fights. But just how brutally aggressive and explosive she was as an athlete. I think I, I expect her to be really technical and to dominate her opponents just based on what I'd heard and read, but I didn't expect her to be this brutalizer. You know, somebody who just, wild like an animal, just goes at people and knows when to finish them off and uh, showed no mercy. It'd be like getting to know, say, Stephen Ferris's personality before you ever saw him as a rugby player over the course of four, five, six years. And him being this really nice, slightly sheepish guy, and yeah, then you see yeah, him on the rugby field. That's exactly what it was like getting yeah. to know Katie over the couple of weeks. All right, Owen, on to you. Number five, yeah, is the Ryder Cup press conference after Europe had won the hour or so of television. I was about to go to bed after they'd won the thing. I thought, I'll just see what happens here. You know, I mean, I had to find out what Colin Montgomery thought about it. Obviously, and he seemed to <laughs> he seemed to have disappeared at some stage over a couple of hours. He popped up on American TV. US Murph was telling us, uh, boring the arse off them as well, but. <laughs> The shortly after the they'd won it, there was this sort of background footage of the European team making their way over to the press conference. They come across I wouldn't say they come across Michael Jordan who's oh, driving yeah. away in his amazing car. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Sergio Garcia leans in and gives him a peck in the cheek, and Michael Jordan looks at him like you know, don't kiss me in the cheek, mate. <laughs> it's just this weird, so many weird things happening. Uh, they then uh, show remember the, the look that Michael Jordan had on his oh, face where he was being I'm, really nice and like he I'm saw not a the man TV who likes cameras. other men kissing me on the cheek. Was yeah, the, yeah, the way that looked. But also there was a couple of them were kind of going over and you know, well, you know. We won today, you know, kind of thing. And you're just thinking, God, if like Patrick Ewing is watching this, you know, <laughs> like these guys are going to get, they're going, he's going to run them over in that car, you know. But he had to be, you know, golf being golf. He had to be like really polite and everything. And then as the Land Rover is going, is just pulling off, you can just imagine like the effing and blinding <laughs> that's going on in that car right now. Both of those teams were then led to the stage. They're sitting up there. The Americans are the glummest looking bunch I've yeah. ever seen. All of them. It's all of oh, them. Oh, all of them. Yeah. I just, they just don't want to be there. Of course, Sorry, they don't. everybody on the team has to go to the press conference oh, and yeah. sit there. Both teams sit there, right? They have to sit through this really over the top extra long Ryder Cup type press conference where the Scottish First, First Minister has a few things to say the head of the PGA is the European Tour there's some I diddly I music I think to signal the Scottish Ryder Cup in uh, a couple of years time all of these things are happening 
to the backdrop of these leery, drunken European golf fans, Euro golf fans, just uh, uh, a tiger, especially, and the rest of them just. Uh, I won't say. Just, uh, is it? Uh, I've totally forgot. Davis Love is the name of the Ryder Cup captain. Yeah. He made some uh, self-deprecating remarks, some sort of gag, you know. And Bubba, I think it was Bubba Watson sitting beside Tiger, and Bubba's kind of laughing, turns to Tiger, Tiger stony face. <laughs> I have no interest in this. Just get me out of here. We lost. Yeah, uh, that sounds great. I'm, I'm, I was in bed, unfortunately, but uh, thanks, for, find it thanks for reliving that one for us. Number four. I attended my first ever Classico uh, this year in January, and I was thinking when I was thinking about the highlights of the year, for some reason I thought it was further going that, but it just about uh, makes it into our time frame here. First time I've actually seen Leo Messi play. I'm sure other people have seen him either internationally or whatever it might be. So it was great to see him play, albeit I had it in my head, had a vague idea before going to watch the game. It was in the, the Bernabeu. It was a, a Copa del Rey first leg tie. But this is, I was slightly worried that they might play a weakened team. And I was informed they don't, you know, Barcelona and Real don't play weakened teams against each other. So that was great. But I was, I thought, I'll go and I'll watch Messi. I'll see his movement. I'll do it. You can't actually do that. There's so many good players. Iniesta was actually probably outshone him that day. Yeah. Uh, the warm up before the game, just underneath where I was sitting, I had pretty good seats. And just underneath where I was sitting, uh, the rest of the Barcelona players were doing their own thing. But... Alves, Dani Alves and Leo Messi were standing about 40 yards away from each other just pinging volleys at each other controlling it on the knee on the chest and the shoulder and the head whatever and volleying it back for about a minute and a half they were nailing it every single time you know and you were thinking Messi's giving himself too much space to make to make up there then suddenly he runs over and just volleys it back they then dropped one volley and funnily enough then started screwing up completely I was thinking they've, they've bottled it here ahead of the big game <laughs> uh, of course they went in 1-2-1 one, one. yeah it's interesting that um you mentioned an event that you were at, mm. you know, like, and I think that that's kind of a big thing as well. Funnily enough, I don't have that many in uh, events that I was at in my top five, but there was a great piece that you did. I think it was probably this year about, you know, is it better, you know, is it better to attend games or yeah. than watch them on television? And uh, it actually led uh, to a couple of big conversations that I had with my brother. And John just said, I haven't been to enough sporting events. And, you know, he has kind of spent the entire year running around trying to go to as many sporting events as possible because you know it is actually it's one thing to see Messi you know and it's one thing to you know watch all the 12 minute YouTube clip of his 90 goals so far this season or whatever but to actually see him in the flesh is a totally different thing and I think that that's you know that like get out to as many sporting events as you can because it is actually just a totally different experience really yeah it really is and it's just amazing to stand on the same piece of ground as these people I remember that struck me most watching Zidane the first time I saw him play I was it wasn't on the top deck I came down and stood on the same piece of earth that Zidane was on and suddenly you begin to realise the swivel of the hips and the movement and the control from distance and it's a really weird thing to go that's why it's so amazing. That's why he bamboozles everybody yeah. who yeah. gets near him with the ball. Because yeah. when you're even when you're in the top deck, sometimes it can be difficult to understand. Although I suppose you get a much better view in the sense of spatial awareness oh, no, and all that kind of stuff too. Cristiano Ronaldo scored, opened the scoring for Real Madrid that night at the game I was at. He was absolutely incredible that day. And the one criticism of him is he doesn't track back and he doesn't defend. So people say that, but actually he's an unbelievable team player in the sense that he looks for every ball. A, a defenders in any difficulty Ronaldo suddenly bursts out to the wing calls for the ball yeah. Casillas has it he's like put it on my head you know? he's not going to score a goal from that but he never goes best hiding. he's going to do is the best he's going to do is flick it on to a teammate get an elbow on the head he, he actually will do that which is why I think the teammates obviously put up with him yeah <laughs> he's pretty good at it as well uh, okay number three Trapattoni visiting the Nerve Centre in Sopot a few days before the start of the European Championships it was a privilege to have him in there the mechanics of it were 
a little messy and that we didn't know. We thought we might be getting him the next day. There was an outside chance he might be there that night. I'm on air and I hear, I don't know if the doorbell rang, there was commotion. Suddenly I'm looking at Mark Horgan and, and it's, uh, you know, G-chatting him, is, is, is that trap? Yeah. So ad break, Trapatonian. The amount of people who told me afterwards, they thought it was a gag. Yeah. And I think every, even, yeah, even yeah. after the 10 minutes, they thought, was that an ad break match? Or was that, what was going on there exactly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was Trapatoni, it was Tardelli, it was Manuela, it was a couple of the other backroom boys, just this bunch of... Calling to your house. Legendary your people kitchen. calling in to look at the, oh. our Robbie Keane mask up above. Yeah. It was actually, it was just one of those surreal moments where um, I think it was about 10 minutes in and, uh, you know, we had got settled into the house. We were probably there about three nights or something, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, you're listening intently to the to the interview, obviously. And then all of a sudden your mind wanders for a second. And then you turn around and that's, that's Marco Tardelli yeah. sitting on the same couch that I, sitting on the same couch that I had my breakfast on. Who we morning. only interviewed then a few days later. Yeah, we didn't even have him on air, like, you know. It was just utterly, utterly ridiculous. And I think, yeah, the thing was, we might get him on the Friday, we might get him on the Thursday. And then there was, a, said, it'll more than likely be tonight. And that was at like half six. And then, you know, so there was no sort of any indication of time or anything like that. And then at around 10 past seven, we get a text message. He's on his way over. And, you know, moments like that, you wish we were 400 yards away from the hotel as opposed to 200 yards from the hotel because that meant he was over in, you know, 90 seconds. But it was, it was... Uh, he was really charismatic as well. Really yeah. fit looking. Yeah. Just bounding in there. Really, really great personality. And at the time, of course, thankfully, we got to do a positive interview People in subsequently after the years, oh, you were so easy on him. He had qualified us and was about to bring us into the tournament, which of course we were going to get to a semi final of. Yeah. So we. <laughs> it was uh, the most exciting week of uh, broadcasting oh, that I can ever remember. Was it the most enjoyable week of broadcasting? Yeah. Yeah. Just completely. Uh, it's kind of unfair. It's. It's like, you know, you know the way you tend to take, you only take photographs when you're on holidays, for example, and that's not yeah. your normal life. Whereas I greatly enjoy loads of interviews that we do here, loads of shows that we have here, but sometimes they blend into one to a certain extent. Whereas if you ask for a standout week or two, clearly Poland jumps out at you. The area we're staying in was lovely. It was good fun uh, uh, after the shows. The shows themselves went really well. It was a good energy. The we got to go to the Croatia match, uh, unfortunately. But uh, so yeah, I definitely probably, definitely probably, definitely. My favorite. <laughs> yeah. All right, number two. Um, number two is Henry Shefflin's performance against Galway in the first All Ireland final this year. Particularly, he actually missed a few frees if I remember correctly early on, and hadn't exactly been massively involved in the play. But the, he just suddenly it might have happened shortly before half time. Definitely when he came out at the start of the second half, he had this aura about him that's a bit cliche but this demeanour this physical demeanour which I was he, was, he was Ian Poulter for a while he was Ian Poulter for a while he was Roy Keane in fact when I was thinking about this today just ahead of coming into the studio it, it was so like the way Roy Keane used to play football there was just a, an energy about him a demeanour about him he looked like a guy who would actually bend the game to the way he mm. wanted it to which is almost impossible to do in sport in team sport yeah. these guys usually excel in individual sports it's hard to do it when you have to rely on other people in Shefflin's case five other forwards who were probably underperforming at least three or four of them were underperforming and he alone was the man he was chasing everyone down it wasn't just the points that he scored uh, the, the points that he laid on anything like that he was chasing people down harrying them down exhorting his teammates for a bit more effort and he won them that All-Ireland. Of course, I had to go and win it the second, but he was the one who, who yeah, got they, them to survive when they played badly. They could day. easily have lost it at that yeah. point. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, over time, great players like Shefflin should have won, you know, and Shefflin is the greatest hurler of all time. Um, he should have won the first six for Kilkenny 
and Kilkenny should have won him the last three. But as it as it as it's actually happened, he's getting more and more important the older he gets. The more like, injured he gets. Yeah, like and I think that, that is the really extraordinary thing. I mean, he is an extraordinary sportsman. I mean, I it's just it's just crazy to me what he has done this year in particular, given that he started the year, you know, basically banjaxed. Yeah. People yeah. saying, you know, if he's gonna come back you know what's he, what's going to come back? You know what uh, iteration of Shefflin is actually going to come He's back? A little less banjax this time, just a broken ankle and some broken ligament ankle, damage yeah. in there. Yeah. I think as well. Perfectly so timed injury. Be okay. Yeah. Number one. Number one. Quite similar to Simon. Katie Taylor. Not again. Not the moment she was named Olympic champion, but the moment after she finished her first fight, that entire first fight against Natasha Jonas, the style of fight that it was, this kind of war, as Simon says, the aggression that was involved in that. The the walk up to the ring, the crowd reaction, all of those things. But in typical Katie Taylor fashion, she didn't allow any of that into her brain. I think she has said subsequently she noticed it, but was very much trying to keep it away. And of course, she has her father there to help her with that process. She wins the fight. She then almost looks around going, wow, what's going on here? I didn't notice all, all this. She steps out of the ring, looks around again. And just before she gets off the ring apron, that amazing now image of her. But at the time, the footage of her just... Two, two fists out big come on I think it was that she said this massive roar and it was just a beautiful photograph yeah. for the next day's papers and for websites that day it was that bit of personality coming out again we've known how successful she has been in her field but a lot of people don't know much about her she's not one to give away her deepest secrets in interviews or anything like that even though she's, you know, she's very nice very friendly type of person we I think we really sort of after the final even running around with the tricolour would be another moment yeah. like that where she just lost herself in the moment somewhat which is what we kind of want to see our sports people do yeah alright Murph for you number five number five uh, rather perversely for a Manchester United fan is uh, Man City winning the league in the last minute uh, because I know one Manchester City fan in my life uh, my cousin Kevin and I went down to his house on the Sunday of the last game of the league because United didn't have a chance to win the league. I mean, they were away to Sunderland. City were at home to QPR. And I said, listen, let's do the decent thing. You know, let's be the bigger man here. We've 19 of these. Let's go back to... Let's go down to Kevin's house. Uh, have a few beers. Relax. Watch the game, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was the day of his daughter's communion, right? So the idea was... right, Drinking from noon. Yeah. The, no, no. The idea was that the entire family would would... Uh, would go down to Kevin's house and there'd be a dinner and you know Kevin would host us all so I was kind of thinking God this is a bit of a pain now for Kevin he's going to have to you know be glad handing everyone and talking to everyone you know I walk in he's wearing sweat pads and this Mad City jersey (laughs) absolutely like plastered onto him right and his wife is running around trying to make food for like 15 or 16 people and I'm like Kevin what the hell is going on here like you're just going to sit in the couch I was like City are going to win the league you know, I'm not going to help it out here, right? So his wife is running around cooking for like this ma- this huge, massive party. And Kevin is just sitting on the couch, just watching this game, watching the build-up, just absolutely wrapped, right? So the game starts and, you know, things aren't going too well and things are going really, really badly. And, you know, United are winning. And, you know, I'm down there, this one or two of my brothers are down there, my dad's a United fan and you know, we're you know, we're kinda of doing that smug thing that you see Kilkenny hurling fans do. You know, ah listen, sure wasn't it great, you know, you got so close, you know, sure next year, you know, he'll give it a good run next year, you know. And uh out of nowhere, you know, Jekyll wasn't it scored the the equalizer. And, you know, I'm just kinda of thinking, all of a sudden 
the ball is just being sucked into that QPR goal. You know, there's just like this unstoppable momentum in that one part of the planet <laughs> where the, there's just no way the ball is going to go anywhere else. And it was just a case of which Man City player was going to score the goal. And still, Kevin was like, we're Man City, we're not going to do this. Yeah. This is typical City, we're going to equalise and not, and not get the winner. And, you know, like I was obviously happy. You know, I, you know, I'm not a huge United fan. United are my team, but... You know, it's you know, it's not it's not one of the hugest passions of my life, say. And I'm you know delighted United have won the league, but that's fine. And then Aguero's goal goes in, and I just have this image in my head of Kevin just going, just totally losing it, like absolutely losing it. And this is you know, this is the Claire Hurling fan, or you know, the San Francisco Giants, the San Francisco Giants winning their first World Series. I mean, this is just, it happens once in a lifetime for these yeah. people. So Especially You called that bang on though, Jared, didn't you? That night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that day, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Not at the time. Don't worry about that. It's been a race from, uh, from all the record. I said yeah. Aguero. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, but it was. It was actually just one of those moments where it's For the record, I thought it was Nasri because I was actually looking at the uh, Sunderland game and looked down and went, oh my God, it's a goal and called it. But luckily, the Nasri bit has been erased from all the clips where I just got, <laughs> <"It's a goal!" laughs> And uh, number four? Uh, number four is um, the BBC's John Inverdale interviewing the two devastated English roars after they'd... They got silver in that race. I had to go back and check because yeah. I thought, you know, God, maybe they'd nearly drowned, which was their disappointment. <laughs> but uh, it was Hunter and Purchase in whatever it was. <laughs> Hunter and Purchase. Yeah, it's the new BBC2 uh, cop show, I believe. But uh, yeah, Hunter and Purchase anyway, you know, and the whole idea of it was, I picked this because it was the most shining example of the ridiculously good job that the BBC did. I don't know about anyone else here, by the way, but I watched RTE on the Saturday morning. I think I texted you the first morning of the Olympics, yeah. Simon. And I said... What do we do with this? Yeah, like, what's going on here? What, we, what are we actually doing here? So I sat down for about half an hour and it was... Oh, I don't, I don't know who it was on RTE, but it was pretty uninspiring stuff. Anyway. And I, I sat down and watched half an hour. I said, Simon... I'm watching the entirety of this tournament on the BBC, you know, and I think you came to very quickly to the same yeah, conclusion. Was, the BBC coverage was unbelievable. Oh, it was just—it was the best television I've ever seen. It was but, like the sporting equivalent of the Blue Planet, you know. Yeah, every yeah, scene yeah, yeah, is yeah, amazing, yeah. just washing over your senses. Yeah, exactly. I, did, I did get a bit fed up by the end of the, uh, and I was happy for uh, a lot of the British athletes. A lot of them were quite likable and all those kind of things. But the late night show was one that I'd always catch after. Uh, yeah, There's a couple yeah. of late night shows, but one of them presented by Gabby Art who did a brilliant job but after a while it started getting a bit there was all this uh, every time they won a medal you know they're pushing up pushing up the board to the background of corny music if they only were going to win five medals over the whole thing that you might have been okay but after a while it, it started looking a little bit tweaked. yeah they probably didn't see it that was, coming the BBC did do, did yeah. do really but well. it was it just basically that Inverdale interview where he tries the two guys try to talk they can't talk Inverdale, Inverdale has a mini breakdown and then all of a sudden you know like and it's like Was Inverdale crying as well? Inver- yeah he basically said this is tough oh gosh it's tough you know when you know these guys yeah. he starts choking up and I, he goes sometimes it's tough here and then he realises that's like oh god <laughs> that makes it sound like you know my suffering is the same as these two guys and you know Redgrave puts the two of them on his back and walks them away to yeah. the medal ceremony You can't tell Inverdale really cares about rowing though yeah, from the yeah. very start it's, uh, but, he knows a lot of them yeah. and I think he might have done it he was certainly a cox or something yeah, like that Yeah 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 but it was really funny he was like uh, <laughs> he, he had this like really 
horrendous emotional moment and then you know the, the BBC voice comes straight back on and throws to the commentators for the next race and you're like Inverdale you magnificent bastard <laughs> 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 but it was very very good ok very, number very 3 good. was Katie we understand you explained yeah. a bit earlier for that one yeah. number 2 you were a big big fan of uh, one team in football from early on I was uh, Donegal uh you know, myself and yourself were talking about Donegal in Dublin last year in the All-Ireland semi-final and we had a different view of it to a lot of other people. Um, we thought that whatever it was should be applauded because he's trying something and he's from a county that doesn't have the players that Dublin and Kerry have. And then this year was basically him saying that we actually do have those players. And I think I, I think I, I, I wrote somewhere, was said it on the show, but there are different types of All-Ireland final victories. Um, you know they're the teams that have been knocking on the door for ages and eventually finally fall over the line like Cork did in 2010 and then other times there's uh, victories where counties time their run beautifully so that by September it's just they're on a crest of a wave and they they manage to win their own like in 2009 say with Kerry um, or with Dublin say where they prove themselves to be the best team over the course of the year without actually playing brilliantly for any more than sort of 20 or 30 minutes of it. Sometimes there comes a year when the best team in May is the best team in June, is the best team in July, is the best team in August, and is the wins the All-Ireland just in style. And and I can't believe that more people aren't talking about this Donegal team because I think they were just... Ah, you sound like Carl Lacey now not getting the respect no, because of course no, they are. This no, is a lot of other great sport going on. No, I actually don't think so. I really don't. I, well, I'm just talking about the RTE panel here, basically, right? And they, 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 they haven't given Donegal the respect. They go, RTGA well... GA panel. Yeah, right. I suppose, you know, I, suppo- I suppose they played really well today. Uh, you know, we saw them last year. Sure, you know, it's not Crow you know, Park in August. It's not, it's not for case. me. You know, it's not for me. But you know, I think by the end, really have they not changed their team? No, not really. No, I mean it was just really grudging. Really, everything about their thing was grudging. Now, I think everyone in the written press gave them loads of respect, but for whatever reason, the Orty GA panel has a place in the GA mentality, which means you know writers can write what they like. But what's on telly is the public opinion, you know. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. So, like, I agree with you to to a degree in that they have gotten loads of respect. And if I was Carol Lacey, I wouldn't be too bothered about what those guys think. But at the same time, I'm not Carol Lacey. And I actually can feel a little bothered by what they think. Because <laughs> I saw them in the, the Ulster final. And I walked out of Clonus that day. And I, I, predicted the, um, I predicted that Donegal would win the, uh, the All-Ireland that day. I mean, I was... Uh, walking out of there with Conor Deegan and with Lee McHale and I said to them I'm sorry am I ridiculous here I, I think Donegal are the best team in the country they're going to win the All-Ireland and I'd kind of talked Deegan around I think you know Lee maybe had his doubts or whatever but they were brilliant they were absolutely brilliant yeah. and uh, yeah they were certainly a highlight for me yeah no a revolution I think uh, okay so you're number one Galway in the All Ireland. Yeah, I well, mean, we have, you haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> well, I, I yes, I, that is my highlight. Uh, I think the Galway, um, even though Galway, they lost, Galway being ultimately. being in an All Ireland is a great thing for a county, and it's more even not even so much the game. It was like the build up with tickets and everything. I'm sitting in my auntie Mary's house the morning of the drawn game, and we all have our tickets on here. We're looking at tickets and we've all been to Crow Park a time or two so we're we you know we look at the number we know we know where we're sitting pretty much and you know mam is sitting there and dad and like oh god we had great tickets in 98 now we did in fairness and where were we now the year 
in we won in 2001 and everyone knew exactly where they were at every single Ireland final and then all of a sudden mum and dad were talking about the brilliant tickets they had for the 1983 All-Ireland football final and I'm just thinking this is this is a nice family thing that we could all share you know that we had I think uh, all six of us were there in the immediate family there was cousins and all the rest there as well and it is actually just an amazing thing to be able to go to the All-Ireland final with your family you know and the drawing game the last five minutes like just amazing drama absolutely amazing drama Shefflin's penalty decides to knock over the bar Canning gets a chance which he misses and you think that's the story then you know Shefflin has it Canning doesn't how unfair is that after Canning's amazing All-Ireland final goal in the first half and then Canning gets a chance at redemption Stefan Owen sitting pretty much directly behind him uh, we can watch it, watch the flight of the ball all the way over. That's just brilliant sport. He mishit it, he said, yeah. afterwards. He yeah. dropped it a little bit. <laughs> and right over the black spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Murph, how conflicted were your feelings after that, though? Because as a neutral, I, I didn't know how, what way to feel about it at all. I know it's a draw, so that sounds kind of obvious, yeah. but the way it ended was so strange. You didn't know what to draw from it. Yeah, yeah. Usually, you know, one team has escaped. Whereas, you know, Galway had Kilkenny on the rack and let them... Uh, let them uh, let them back into it so there was an element of disappointment as well I'll tell you what my immediate reaction was relief that Canning 3 got over then total despair that I'd booked a flight to London for the following weekend <laughs> like an utter dejection I was like I, what the hell am I going to do because it was a thing I, I couldn't get out of in London and then the PA announcer was a says a worried man for about 10 minutes yeah well it was about, about a minute yeah. about a minute the PA comes on three weeks replay will be played in three weeks and I guess <laughs> thank god I think I got a nice bear hug for, for that. that yeah you did you, you got, that wasn't your first bear hug that night or indeed your last <laughs> maybe that was before it came Michael out of the time reaction. Yeah. folks we've got to go but um, you were saying a series of best ofs coming up series of best ofs over the next uh, week or so we're live on the 27th but we have uh, yeah a load of really good stuff coming up actually because it was an amazing year so everything we've been talking about it's the best sporting year since we started working I think in radio yeah. oh yeah certainly it's going to be better next year though you know why Jerry Mayo for Sam <laughs> <laughs> uh, always good to end on a gag leave him laughing <laughs> <this>, eh? <laughs> my thanks to Team OTB uh, thank you Jeff. thanks, thanks Jer. Jer.